Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The Ford government has rescinded the sex ed curriculum that was brought in a few years ago. Says it's working on a new one. The new model, the new guidelines will be out soon. Presumably in time for a school year. But in the meantime, Elementary Teachers Federation President Sam Hammond, who's the head of the teacher's elementary teachers union, essentially, says his union will defend any teacher that goes against the government's wishes and teaches the new curriculum, the one that has been rescinded. Uh, Here's a quote from Sam Hammond. Teachers will not be muzzled by a government whose political agenda takes precedence over the protection and education of the students. Well, why this is controversial, and I think it's pretty clear to anyone, why this is controversial is that his comments and the position of the teachers who are saying we're going to do this are basically thumbing their nose at the government that was elected in part on a very public, very out front platform that rescinding this sex ed curriculum was part of what they were all about. They were elected running as this with this as part of what they were doing. So what should happen? What could happen if teachers bolstered by their union balk against the government and decide that they are going to act against the wishes of the government and go ahead and do this anyway. Barry Kay is a political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. He is a regular here on 900 CHML. We're always glad to have him. Barry, thanks for doing this today. Let me see if I can get Barry here. Hello, Barry. Yeah, okay, there we go. Sorry, my the button was not working. It was okay? sticking. I said hello. Oh, there we go. Thanks for coming on today. And now that I have pressed the button successfully, it's August. We're having trouble even with buttons today. Um, it's an interesting spot we find ourselves in with this particular topic because essentially we have the possibility that employees could be telling their employer, we're not going to follow your rules. Uh, if that happens, what do we do with that? Well, I mean, it's it's one of several issues. The uh, the uh, new government is certainly making a splash. Um, uh, some of these things, including this one, actually, they had talked about during the campaign. Some others, such as uh, having Toronto City Council and the uh, the income supplement program, had were not announced. Uh, but I guess if you're going to break the crockery and you want to make a splash, you you do it at the beginning. Um, I'll t- I'll tell you. Uh, you know, we I, I reflected a little bit about this when uh, I was first contacted by by the station a, a little bit ago. Uh, I, I do think that at, come, at the end of the day, this is going to be very difficult to enforce over a, um, a teaching workforce who um, have real problems and challenges. The idea, I, I'm not sure to what extent we want to get into the weeds in terms of the implementation. Ostensibly, teachers who start talking about bullying and start talking about same-sex families and so forth, these are some of the changes that have been brought in over the years. Um, they will be in contravention of the government rules. Enforcing that, however, especially when we're talking about classroom interactions. Remembering in classroom interactions, uh, teachers may talk about certain topics, but in fact, inevitably, there's going to be a give and take. Uh, Inevitably, students are going to ask questions and teachers are going to respond. And that that happens in many subjects, not just this one. They they don't always stick exactly to, in in other courses too, exactly to what the, the, the program is. The, the bottom line I guess I'm heading toward is to actually, if in fact some teachers that might be a little bit more forthcoming than others and feel very strongly about this issue, if they want to go into areas that are not prescribed by the, um, by the curriculum, um, uh, are going to find themselves potentially being charged, I guess. The way it would happen, I guess, is that uh, they would say things in class that the students would then take home to their parents, and if the parents were particularly unhappy about it, they might then 
talk to local MPs and other officials and try to bring around proceedings. But the actual enforcement and application of these rules, I think, is, is frankly a mugs game. I, I don't think it's, it's probably enforceable at all. I liken it, I guess, a little bit to another subject where there may be some consensus in society, the idea of uh, pornography, that pornography is something that um, government should be able to regulate. And in theory, government should be able to pass laws in all sorts of areas if they want. But actually being able to get convictions on pornography charges has largely been, been um, unachievable. Um, and it's because it's just a touchy-feely area where it's very difficult to define what is going beyond the bounds and what isn't. Um, coming back to the issue of, uh, of sex education, many of these instances will probably result not from the teachers initiating information that is now prescribed or is going to be prescribed, it's not official yet, but it just answering questions from students. I, I see it going that way. Initially, uh, student uh, teachers may be fearful of their jobs. It may, it may be take a kind of a gutsy teacher who is prepared to go a little bit over the line. But at the end of the day, I do not think these prescriptions are going to be enforceable. Some teachers will go over the line. Other teachers won't. But the whole definition of what is the line is something that's going to be very difficult to challenge because, in fact, um, it, these inevitably are going to result from class interactions where it's Teachers is asking questions. Teachers talk about all sorts of things in lots of classes that aren't necessarily on the, um, on the school curriculum. Anyway, for this reason, for this kind of reason anyway, I have real doubts as to whether or not at the end of the day uh, the government's going to be able to enforce it. And once they've been, a, been seen to be a, uh, unable to enforce it, I think you're going to find lots of, lots of more teachers probably going over the line if that's what it is. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The teachers union, elementary school teachers union today saying, we're going to support any teachers who decide to defy the government, the Ford government who has rescinded the more up-to-date sex ed curriculum. We're, we're fine with that. We're, we're going to back you if you do that. And Barry, I, I think your point just before the break, I think your point was very, very well taken. And that is most of these discussions are probably going to be spin-offs of questions or topics that students bring up. And so I think it's going to be very difficult probably in order to come to any of these difficult situations where a teacher is on the hook for something. However, I think the question today a lot of people had is, is it appropriate for a union within the province to basically tell the government directly, we're not going to follow the rules, the laws, the guidelines that you, who are our employers, that you have put in place. We're basically telling you we're not going to do what you tell us. Is that is that an appropriate position for any public service union to take? Well, it's a matter of definition. Uh, my sense is that they would choose not to define it quite the way you worded it. Okay. I suggest rather that they're there to protect their their members. The high moral it, ground is what they're the, saying they're taking. If the members suggest it's a matter, I'm not sure this is exactly free speech issue, but um, the, the idea that um, teachers can't answer questions that students might raise in forthright ways um, could be argued is, is something that goes above and beyond what the, uh, the, the, the laws are, are, able to, uh, are able to present. I, I don't think the, if you're asked the question, such the, again, as, as you worded it, um, should uh, unions... Uh, basically encourage their members to break the law. No, but that's not the way it'll be defined, and that's not the way it'll be interpreted, and they will be there to uh, to support their members, and that's what unions do, like it or not. Not everybody's pro-union, but that's what unions do. Well, and there's no, listen, there's no question that people are mixed on this one, that there are some who will say the union and the teachers who would support this would be taking the high moral ground because they want to look after the students. Uh, there are others who say, wait a second, uh, we just had an election and this was a plank of the platform and that party won. 
And that's how our democracy works, that the party that wins and brings in their platforms, they are to be obeyed. And so how, I mean, how do you parse these two sides to, so that both sides feel like somehow that we're following some sort of rule of law or rule of democracy? Well, yeah, I, I just don't think it's enforceable. It's not that the government isn't entitled to pass laws. Um, in, in this particular case, of course, the government was elected with, what, about 40% of the vote, but we have a multi-party system, and we almost always have governments that are elected with less than 50% of the vote and, you know, in place. Uh, what we find, this particular issue, I don't think was a barn burner for most people voting in the election. I'm not sure. All I can't say that with certainty. I haven't seen a lot of polling data. Uh, this election was really more about time for a change than it was about a specific issue about sex ed, but it was raised. And I think it's fair to say that probably most people who supported the Conservatives, certainly people who were Conservative Party members, probably have a more traditional view about sex education uh, than, than the others. That said, however, uh, to suggest that the government can basically prevent teachers um, from answering students' questions, because I think that's the way it will be defined. And my hunch is, should it go to the courts, and maybe it will, uh, that I think it's a foolish measure, and I think the government is better off backtracking. Should this become, I think initially they must suggest that they're going to, it's going to be a rule, and they're going to enforce it. But I don't think, I don't think it's wise and astute to uh, to take it to the wall. Nonetheless, should it go that 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 direction, uh, we will see. It's not the first law that has um, been seen to be unfair and unjust and unenforceable. Basically, that's what happened with regard to abortion. You know, um, back. Uh, almost 30 years ago with, with Morgenthaler, that in fact they weren't able to get convictions. That's why um, issues associated with pornography are, are largely unenforceable legally. Maybe it's extremes they might be, but the, the, the idea... So there are lots of things that governments over the years have tried to legislate, uh, and they have not been able to effectively do so because they couldn't enforce it by getting convictions through the courts. That's my guess as to where it will go. So what's going to happen with this then? Is this is this going to be much ado about nothing and we're really not going to ever hear anything about this ever again? Oh, there'll be attention to it. And in fact, I think that the government will probably be quite happy to suggest that they're doing their best to uh, to please their base. And I think the base probably of the Conservative Party provincially probably is more concerned about this issue that uh, Tanya Granick Allen made it quite an issue during her her leadership uh, campaign uh, you know when the conservatives were, were holding it uh, I think there are people in the party that are concerned about it I, I think the conservatives will make a show about it I just think at the end of the day um, if it should uh, teachers and inevitably teachers are going to cross the line in part because the line itself is so vague in terms of what what is acceptable and what isn't so long as the teachers do not make a case to suggest that they are consciously breaking the law, but rather are breaking the curriculum proposal, but rather just answering student questions. And student questions inevitably in this area, a sensitive area like this, is going to come up. That ultimately, mm-hmm. um, again, I guess I'm repeating myself, but ultimately I, I, I have questions as to whether or not it's going to be enforceable. The conservatives may sort of fight the good fight and try to put it through. Um, and and I, I think the, the teachers' unions have suggested that they will defend their members. I don't think they've come out and said they are going to consciously defy the curriculum, only that, in fact, they will protect their members, and that's certainly their right to do so. It turns out, however, that protecting their members effectively tends to undermine the intent of the curriculum. Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier, always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. Sure. Bye-bye now. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Will's on the other side of the glass today, handling the phones and the music and everything else. And uh, by the way, Will is looking very sharp. I was away for a few weeks on vacation and then filling in for Bill Kelly and for Scott Thompson. I come back and Will's got a haircut. He looks very professional. 
Not that he didn't look, well, he didn't look professional before. He looked like a bum before. I'm just hey, kidding. I'm yeah, just kidding. I'm just kidding. But he looks very professional now. And so I'm going to bring him in here. And I expect that now with this haircut, with this very adult haircut, that his level of discourse will rise to the occasion. Although this topic is not really one that will require you to rise to any occasion, let me tell you. So I am a parent. I know you're not a parent. I have a couple of kids. I mean... Give it time. You will. Event. Well, not that we know of anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so as a parent, the thing that is, and anyone listening who is a parent, who has ever been a parent, who may have grandkids now, the one thing as a parent, unless you are one of those outliers who somehow never got the parenting gene, you produced kids, but never actually had the parenting thing. The number one thing as a parent that you understand is the protection instinct for your kids. Mm-hmm. You may be a crappy parent, and there are those out there, but still somewhere deep down, you are concerned for your kids. If they're Until they're in at night, all these things. You are concerned that your kids are alive or safe. You, you lie in fear of what could happen to them. You, there's been always times you worry. All right, every single parent knows what I'm talking about. That's the baseline because I want to tell you the story about... What is her name here? Mackenzie Alexis Noland. Mackenzie Alexis Noland. She is a Texas A&M student down in university in Texas, obviously. Uh, she had graduated this year and had her graduation photos in an unusual place. Mackenzie Alexis Noland had been a, an intern at Gator Country in <laughs> Beaumont, Texas. And okay. during, during her time as an intern in Beaumont, Texas, she... Allegedly, so she says, became friends with Big Tex, (laughs) who is a 14-foot, multi-hundred-pound gator. Wow. So she decided, of course, as you would, that she's going to wear her graduation gown and mortarboard in the water, up to her waist almost, posing with Big Tex. Well, of course. He's he's her friend. <laughs> Patting his nose, putting her graduation ring <laughs> on his nose, nuzzling with him, giving him some kisses. Because oh my gosh. she says we became really close. He's like my pet puppy now. Ooh, those are different things. See, and thank you, because I'm looking at this thinking to myself, I don't care, Mackenzie, how much you think that Big Tex is your big puppy. If you have a toy poodle who is a puppy, there is a vast difference between that and a 14-foot-long gator with the brain the size of a peanut that doesn't really (laughs) have the capacity to learn human instinct and behavior. And if you get him on the wrong day and he's got a growl in his tummy and is feeling a little hungry. You want to know what you're going to be? An appetizer. Yeah. And I'm looking at this thinking, where are her parents? What what parent says, yeah, that's a terrific idea. Pose in the gator pit with a 14-foot gator for your graduation photos and then go spend all your free time hanging out with big techs. <laughs> What do you think the chances are, Will, that somewhere in the not-too-distant future, we are seeing a follow-up story to this one, which is the obituary of young Mackenzie Alexis Noland, who sadly has been eaten by her friend Big Tex, which I hope doesn't happen, but... I don't think I'm crazy for thinking that's a possibility. I think it is. I The only 
Um, this is a huge gator, by the way. It, Enormous. I am imagining this. Yeah, the, the only consolation, that uh, the only thing that comes close to that is I would think if she has been trained in how to deal with gators, if she has spent time with Big Tex, she hopefully can spot when he's in a foul mood from a distance and picked the right like hopefully she wasn't just gonna do this one way or another she got she looked at him and thought no no he can tolerate me today i watched on netflix a while back one of those sir richard attenborough or david attenborough whoever it is bbc nature documentaries called the hunt and one of the scenes are all the wildebeest in Africa coming down this bank of into the yep. river because they have to cross the river to get to the green grass. And there are hundreds of crocodiles that are in the water <laughs> waiting for them. And when you watch the crocodiles attack, they go from being 100% perfectly still to ripping a gnu yeah. to shreds in the span of a second. This girl has no way... This thing could be lying stationary and like that. Mm-hmm. He decides, ah... You look tasty. Yeah, they're not. Yeah, that you're you're right. They're not even mammals. That's the other thing. You don't you can't read them the way we could say uh, you know, even some sort of large cat, a tiger or something. I am I I I cannot believe. And I'm sorry to the Nolans if you're listening in Beaumont, Texas. We can be picked up online if you're down there. Yeah. I cannot believe that the Nolans are saying this is a good idea. If my daughter said, I'm spending my days hanging out with a 14-foot crocodile and nuzzling him and kissing him and patting him on the head like my puppy, I'm sending her for counseling, <laughs> not back to the crock pit. This is insane. I really hope that we're not going to have the follow-up story that I expect we will somewhere down the road. I really, really hope that's not the case, but ugh. I too hope this. I can't even look at these pictures without getting skittish about her in the crocodile pit, just looking like a giant appetizer. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Rick Zamperin. The sports director, the assistant news director, the he's got so many titles around here, I can't keep up with it, but he is the man that makes CHML run. He joins us now. Rick, how are you? I'm good. I'm also the director of knowing uh, every country with uh, four letters. Do you? How ma- yeah. Without giving the answer away, how many of those do you think you could come up with? I, I know at least three. Okay. As you were mentioning, I'm like, boom, 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 one, two, three. Well, I'll give a hint to some people. There are two of them, and I don't know if this is what you found. There are two of them that if you get one, you're bound to get the other one immediately. Yes, exactly. Okay, and then you just got to find one more. Yeah. All right, uh, I want to get to a bunch of things here, but just before we get to the real reason I want to have you on here, I I did want to break this news to you. Uh, True story, which I truly am finding one of the most ridiculous things, uh, in addition, other than a university student cuddling with a 14-foot crocodile for her graduation photos. Do you remember about a year and a half or two years ago, I think it was in Washington, the Maple Leafs were playing a playoff game, and the cameras caught that guy with his face painted in the beard and dart guy. Remember dart yeah. guy? Yes, yes. And we thought, yeah, dart guy. All right, that's a five-minute Andy Warhol thing of fame. <laughs> Guess who just got hired as a scout? For the North American Scouting Service. <laughs> Come on. Dart Guy. Wow. Dart That's... Guy is now a, a, an official hockey scout. What is the world coming to, Rick? That is uh, incredible. So is he scouting for the league or just as for a team? I think he may be scouting players who smoke. 
I'm not really sure who, who, who exactly he'll be scouting. He specializes in nicotine-induced athletes. That's right. He would have found Denny Savard and Guy Lafleur, the two most famous guys who were heavy smokers in NHL yeah. history. Uh, that, to me, is somewhat bonkers. But, you know, we'll, well see. We'll see if he can find anybody. Good for him. Uh, let us move on to something way more... Um, well, I don't know if it's any more sensible. Because anyone who was watching the Alouettes game on the weekend... And Johnny Manziel, I think after the first game, I don't know if, well, what do you think? Were more people or less people watching the second time? Probably a f- few fewer, right? I, I, I would think a, a little bit fewer. Uh, but I think those who did watch both games uh, clearly realized in game number two that uh, practice uh, obviously counts because he looked uh, a little bit better. Well, you, you know, he looked a lot better than he did in, in the first game, but he still has a ways to go. But there was some improvement there, so that was good. So I, I don't even remember where it was in the game, what quarter it was. I think it was the third quarter, maybe second quarter. Yeah. Uh, he uh, takes off with the ball. I don't know if it was a set play or he just it broke down. But anyway, he's running towards the end zone. He gets to just outside the goal line, and he gets hammered, uh, shoulder to head. He gets a big shot in the head. When he goes down, and you you can describe it, but I mean, he looked like he went limp when he got hit. Uh, that it, it, I don't know if he was knocked out, but he, he it was a hard hit to the noggin. Yes, I mean, you described it accurately. It's, this is, you know, late stages of, of the third quarter. I think it was about five and a half, six minutes left. Uh, you know, he, he can't find a receiver, so he kind of scrambles out of the pocket, heads to, to the goal line, and is met by two or three uh, Ottawa Red Blacks, one being Jonathan Rose, who uh, I think layered, uh, laid the biggest boom of the bunch. <clears throat> but uh, Manziel loses the football on the goal line. Montreal still recovers and scored a touchdown, but... Uh, as Johnny is going to the ground, I, I don't think he knows where he is, what time it is, uh, why he's there, what just happened. Uh, b- by <laughs> the time, by the time you know a teammate kind of gets to him, which is uh, I'm, we're talking a matter of seconds, I think he's somewhat uh, knowing what just occurred. But I think for a moment there, uh, he was uh, I can't really say whether he was knocked. Yeah, he was woozy. His bell got rung, quote unquote. Because uh, you could see that he had lost all kind of semblance of, of what he was uh, supposed to be doing in that moment. And and the key, uh, the tip-off, I think, is if you watch the replay, he gets up, someone helps him up to his feet. For, he gets knocked down, he goes kind of limp. Yeah. Uh, poor Johnny, about four gigantic human beings then dive right on top of him and almost <laughs> like push him right through the ground. Right. Um, but they help him up. The tip-off to me is he's running about five strides back towards the sideline and does yeah. that head shake thing that always is a usual tip-off that something's not quite feeling right, that he's a little foggy or whatever else. Maybe he's adjusting his helmet, but usually when guys do that little head shake, it's because it's a little fog going on in there. He did not miss a play. Yeah. And... I don't know if the com- concussion protocol was done. It's hard to tell because on the sidelines, there were definitely guys talking to him and rubbing his neck. And I don't know if the CFL concussion protocol was followed. I will assume it was because I don't want to assume that it wasn't. But, oh boy, I, I, I don't really understand what the protocol is exactly then if a guy could take that kind of a shot and not miss a single play. I've read a few articles, uh, you know, leading up to today, especially after hearing what Alouette's coach Mike Sherman had to say earlier today, which really wasn't much other than, you know, Manziel missed practice today uh, on an unrelated matter. He needed some uh, some blood work done uh, for, again, an unrelated matter. But still, 
apparently the CFL did follow its concussion protocol. And, and the way I can break it down is, uh, you know, when Manziel's on the sideline, uh, they are talking to him. They are, you know, the TV camera show, uh, one uh, athletic therapist kind of rubbing the back of his neck. So I think the in terms of gaining information from him as to, you know, all those kind of questions, you know, what, what's the score in the game? What day is it? Who are you? You know, what's your name? All that kind of stuff. I think uh, he, he he must have passed that phase because if he didn't and they continue to let him play, I mean, we have a serious issue. The, the, the thing we don't know is what were the answers to those questions? Was he coherent? Were they 100% convinced that he was okay and didn't suffer a concussion? Um, I, I don't know. You know, there is, uh, there is an off-field kind of uh, spotter, if you will, that, uh, you know, identifies certain players who are incapable or, or should not be going back into uh, into the game. And uh, I'm not sure what kind of interaction Manziel had with that individual, if there was any at all, I'm not sure. But uh, apparently the CFL deemed that the, the protocol was followed and uh, he was ultimately allowed back into the game. It was clear, and to your point, it, it was absolutely clear that he was not being ignored on the sidelines. There were right. people who were dealing with him, and so if they say the protocol was followed... Uh, I'm not going to take issue with that. If they follow the protocol, they follow the protocol. I guess my follow-up question, though, becomes how much can you determine? And maybe the doctors will say you can determine everything about a guy's ability or not ability or what what has happened to him. But how much can you tell in a very brief period of time? Because, again, I look at that and I think I don't know if he's concussed. Apparently he wasn't. But I'm very confused, and, and I think a lot of other people are too, then, about what is and what isn't and what can you determine in a very short period of time. It, it, it all looks very confusing to people. And, you know, the thing is, too, is that, uh, you know, athletes, and not just in football, you've seen this in, in hockey and, and, and baseball, you know, other sports where uh, they will suffer a, a quote-unquote head injury, but it won't be diagnosed a concussion until a, a day or two later when, you know, these symptoms really kind of you know, come to the forefront. Uh, so who knows, maybe uh, come tomorrow or even even today, th- this very moment, Johnny Manziel could be having some concussion-like symptoms. I mean, that's not... That weren't uh, evident at the, the time. At all. That exactly. weren't evident at the time. But how come then in the NFL, they've determined that to properly do this, you have to go to a little tent that they have set yeah. up on the side. So you're by yourself and the distractions are gone and we can really focus. The NHL, you have to go to the quiet room the CFL, apparently you can talk to someone on the bench for a few seconds, and that's significant enough. I, I, I'm i not clear from all the different leagues about the lack of consistency with this and why we don't have some sports medicine physicians who are saying this is the right way to do it, because it seems like everybody's got their own idea. Yeah, I know in the CFL, when a player is uh, down for whatever the injury is, doesn't have to be a head injury, you know, they and, and the, the therapist comes out on the field, you know, the official stop the play, that player, that athlete has to miss the next three plays. And that, you know, gives uh, the training staff, the team doctors, you know, a, a few moments at least to kind of, you know, gather their thoughts and, and try to make a prognosis on the spot, which isn't easy either. Um so I, I think with any kind of, you know, especially head injury, because we have, you know, we're, we're in the TV and the digital age now, we can see in super, super uh, slow motion what body part is impacted. I think leagues, it's imperative on leagues to say, you know, hold the fort here. We have to, you know, put this player aside 
and really get to the bottom of what exactly happened and what kind of, uh, you know, symptoms are they expressing. And, and again, they might not come to the fore all at once, but I think leagues have to do a better idea or a better uh, job of uh, diagnosing or at least trying to diagnose injured players. You mentioned the NHL with their dark room. I think that, that was a great idea, even though, you know, come playoff time, a lot of players kind of scoff at, you know, leaving the ice. But I think And it's quick. It is quick. And, and it's quick, yeah. And guys come back, you know, uh, well within or well before that uh, allotted time limit. So I get all that. But I think it's it's ultra important for, for leagues to protect, and players associations, really, to protect their members and their players because that's really the lifeblood of the sport. So uh, I, I think the CFL has to really look at, and I, I think they've they've made some uh, jumps by leaps and bounds in improving their, their protocol, at least, at least the – the, you know the, the checklist i think they can do some improvements whether it's a tent or whether you know that that player goes to the locker room whatever the case is i think they have to kind of slow that process down and make sure make absolute sure that that player is ready to get back on the field yeah and as i say i i, I don't have any reason to not believe that the cfl did their protocol i expect that they did do their protocol for the for the simple reason that now that they have it in place they would be out of their minds not to because what if you don't do it to someone and they go back in the game, and they've got a brain bleed or something, and they die. I mean, the yeah. the the damage to you as a league, not only uh, philosophically with people saying you're out of your mind, but the the financial cost to a league if a guy ever did that, it's just not worth not doing it. So I expect they did it. I just find it interesting, challenging. I don't know what the right word is that a guy could take a shot like that and that quickly it could be determined through that protocol that he's fine to go again. Yeah, that, that's the trouble I have, too. I think, <clears throat> I'm not sure what the time limit is, whether it's five minutes or ten minutes or, or whatever the case is, but I think it has to happen a lot longer than just a few moments, which is what it seemed like uh, you know, on the sideline. And the other thing to consider is, you know, what if that wasn't Johnny Manziel? What if it was, I don't know, Terrell Sutton or Ernest Jackson or Adarius Bowman, any other... Uh, or just a, or an uh, offensive lineman that no one's ever yeah, heard of. Exactly. I mean, would uh, obviously the protocol is going to be followed, but would they say, hold on, we don't quite need you that much to get you back on the field that quickly, whereas the quarterback, and as we know in football, the quarterback is the straw, straw that stirs the drink, uh, whether it's Manziel or whether it's a you know Mike Riley or a Bo Levi Mitchell, I think it's imperative that teams look after their guys because if, as you said, you know that player goes back onto the field, suffers a debilitating injury on the field, not only are we talking lawsuits, but we're talking moms and dads watching at home or in in the stadium thinking. I don't want my kid doing mm. that, and, and now you're really severely impacting the game. Yeah, and this is not even just the CFL. I've, there, there have been guys in the NHL that I've said, how in the world did they get done their protocol that quickly with the hellacious hit they just took, and with the NFL too. And it's, I, I mean, I, I'm, I have to trust, I guess we have to trust that the doctors can make these diagnoses that quickly, but boy, it, we don't if you were fixing a, a, a dripping faucet in your tap, you wouldn't make the diagnosis about what the problem was that quickly. It just, it seems to me just amazing and difficult to imagine that we can figure it out that fast. Maybe we can, maybe we can, but this one, I, I looked at this one and I went, boy, oh boy, I don't know how they chose, how they decided that quickly that he was fine. I just didn't know. That's, it may be fine, but I just couldn't get, I couldn't figure it out. 
Yeah, I'd love to be, you know, within that huddle, within, uh, you know, the, the sphere of the athletic therapist and the team doctor and, and Manziel, obviously, just to hear the interaction and how that went. And then, obviously, we can better assess whether or not he was, you know, capable of returning. Let me switch up for a few minutes that we have left here to a uh, different sport, although it's back to where we started from. We started with... Um with Dart Guy, who is the uh, the Leaf super <laughs> fan, who's now a scout. Let me go back to the Leafs for a minute, because uh, some news out today, or yesterday, I'm not sure, but in the last day or two, NBC, of course, has the broadcast rights in the States for the NHL. Yeah. And we know that in recent years, the one thing that NBC wanted absolutely no part of was any kind of Canadian team on their broadcast. They would show the Chicago Blackhawks versus the Boston Bruins 47 (laughs) days in a row before they would give you a whiff that there was even a team north of the border. Well, schedule's out for this year. Toronto Maple Leafs are going to be on NBC six times this year. Winnipeg Jets, Winnipeg Jets, I mean... Most people, Rick, in the States don't even know there's a city called Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. They're going to be on five times. What is changing? Is it, is this just, do you think, and I mean, we don't know exactly, but is this just a realization that these are two really good teams? Or do you think that NBC and American viewers are just getting sick and tired of seeing the Blackhawks week after week? What, what's happening that they're doing this? I would go probably the former as opposed to the latter, although, you know, Chicago has been really good for a long, long time. They're obviously a team that has slipped over the last couple of years. Um, I I think it's two things. Number one, yeah, you know, the Leafs and the Jets are, as they proved this past season, the two best Canadian outfits. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than that, especially for the Maple Leafs. You have, uh, you know, a budding superstar, and he might be a superstar right now, in Austin Matthews, who, lo and behold, is an American kid uh, from the sunny South. So uh, I think NBC is going to want to, you know, capitalize on that. I think they realize a team like the Leafs is, is one of those up-and-coming teams that should challenge, uh, you know, for division titles and, you know, knock on wood, a Stanley Cup championship if they're lucky enough to get that far. Uh, and Winnipeg's already kind of there. You know, they go to the Western Conference Final. They're a team that is loaded with talent. Um, not so much in, in terms of, you know, an American superstar, but they have some really up and coming great guys or guys that are, uh, you know, on the, on the cusp of scoring titles like Mark Shifley, Patrick Laine, obviously is an international, uh, superstar who's just, you know, starting his career like Matthews. I think NBC has realized that there is talent north of the border, uh, that they can attract some U.S. viewers as well. And I think, I think a little bit, too, is a little diversity. You know, NBC might have gotten some feedback from some of their hockey fans to say, uh, yeah, are you sick of those Chicago and and, uh, uh, and Boston and or, or Rangers and, uh, you know, L.A. Kings kind of matchups? And uh, that might be the case, too. But I think, uh, you know, two teams that are the best in the nation in, in terms of Canadian outfits and, you know, uh, having an American superstar, Matthews, on TVs down south is not going to uh, hurt things either. Maybe I'm naive in this one, but I also wonder if they finally looked at this and said, you know what, Uh, if we're going to show the playoffs and these teams have a good chance to go a long way in the playoffs, it looks kind (laughs) of stupid of us if we've never even acknowledged that they exist prior to the playoffs starting. Yeah, that's that's a good point because, you know, those two teams are all but assured to make the playoffs unless something disastrous happens. The other Canadian teams, I'm not so sure. I, I think I'd probably put Edmonton in that boat, but, uh, I mean, we saw last year that they can Im- implode with the best of them. Uh, <laughs> True <laughs> but, enough. You, know, you, you look around the league, and, you know, if you're NBC, yeah, you want to highlight, uh, you know, the, the top teams in the U.S., but 
I think you want to highlight the top teams, period, because, yeah, come playoff time, they're going to be showing the playoffs, and, and the Torontos and the Winnipegs will certainly there, be there, just like you know Pittsburgh will be there, and just like uh, Tampa Bay will be there, and, and Boston and whatnot. So uh, I think it's important to educate the fans down south on who plays for these other teams. Yeah, I... I... I mean, they're, they're, the usual teams are on there, and the list came out. NBC put the list was um, the full list was published. And I'm trying to find it here while we're talking because I'm um, I am curious as we're talking about this. Since we're making fun of Chicago to see how many times I still bet they're on about 97 times. They're, oh yeah, they probably added games to their schedule just to fulfill <laughs> NBC's love of Chicago and Detroit and those kind of things. But I do think it says something. Uh, about the way the Leafs are being perceived around the league for the first time in a long, long time uh, that yeah, they, they are getting this. Really, yeah, this has been really a generational thing. I mean, uh, obviously, you know, the Leafs in their history have been a staple on a hockey night in Canada. It's, you know, it's been Toronto and Montreal, and obviously all the other Canadian teams have been, uh, you know, a part of that as well. be interesting to see as well, because of their success, certainly, and because they're going into year two, how many times Vegas plays on NBC. I haven't seen the NBC schedule but uh, you know that's a team that really uh, created a lot of buzz. Their 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 pregame uh, theatrics were you know over the top, but uh, you know very enjoyable at times. Uh, and if they play good hockey, I think they'd be a, a winner on NBC for sure. Did you like those pregames? I love those pregames. I I like some of them. Some others were yeah, a little on the. Uh, I'm not sure if corny is the word, but I thought just a little bit over the top. I, I thought all the ones that I saw in the playoffs were outstanding. They they did a phenomenal job, and it's. You know, it's something different. It's something unconventional. That's what Vegas is all about. It's uh, you know a, a, a city in an area that uh, is uh, fun for all, and I think they were just having fun with uh, you know what uh, the the theme of their entity is. So uh, I found the playoff ones enjoyable. There's some that I saw during the regular season. I thought, eh, that's, that's a little too much. I would love for their pregame show to last for three and a half hours. You, I mean, you show up at noon. <laughs> yeah. And we're just going to keep going. We're going to have Elvis impersonators, and we're going to have Celine Dion show up in some white tigers, and we're going to drip down some Elvis sweat out of the ceiling. And I mean, on and on. Just bring the whole thing. Just make it insanely over the top because that's what it, that's what Vegas is supposed to be. And um, just before I let you go, uh, shocker, shocker of all shockers, and I didn't even realize this with what we were just saying until I pulled mm-hmm. this up. Guess who's in the outdoor game this year? Oh my God! Is it Chicago and Vegas? Chicago and Boston. <laughs> I think Chicago has had more outdoor games wow. in since about 2000 than they did before they built arenas. And it's in Chicago again. It, it is in Notre Dame Stadium in Indiana, so it's just oh, outside wow. of Chicago. Grand Bend. Wow. And the other, what do you think the other game might be? The other team that seems to be in the outdoor <laughs> games every single time. I'm going to go with Pittsburgh and the Rangers. Pittsburgh and the Flyers. Oh, nice. yeah, there you go. It's um, not too predictable, but at least we got the Leafs and we got the Jets and we got a few other teams this year. If you want to watch hockey on NBC, as opposed to the fact that you could see all the games up here, I guess, anyway, no matter where yeah. it's on. So Rick Zamperin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. And if you one. paint your face with a maple yeah. leaf symbol <laughs> and stick a cigarette in your mouth, you too can be a professional scout. Can't wait. Thank you. See ya. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.